Lord, we do sing your praises tonight. Lord, you are so good to us, and you deserve all of our, all of our praise, all of our worship. Lord, the, as we just sang, the battles that we face truly belong to you. Lord, we thank you that you are our defender, that the victory was won for us at Calvary, that we are more than conquerors in you. Lord, our desire tonight is, again, as we open your word, your, your very living, holy, and precious word. Lord, that it would do a work in us. Lord, we come here in the middle of busy weeks, a lot of things going on, a lot of things trying to grab our attention. Lord, we ask that for this next time, this next 45 minutes or so, Lord, that you would have our undivided attention as we open your word, Lord, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening. God bless you guys. Is this, isn't this great, this weather? Get to, get to put an extra blanket on the bed tonight, I think. That's going to be awesome. Yay. Or a blanket. All right. Take out your Bibles, please, and open them up with me. First Samuel chapter 30, 1 Samuel chapter 30, we finish this book tonight, studying through 1 Samuel. We come to the end of, a, obviously, a chapter, a book, this, as it was written here, but a chapter in the life of, of David, and we're going to see this again as a turning point in his life. And I think it's important that we get a you know, again, a little bit of a background as to how we get here and as we look at the lives, again, the beginning of the reign next week as we get into 2 Samuel of, of David as king, finally recognized as king because Saul, we're going to see, meets a, meets a tragic end at the end of chapter 31. But we've, we've been watching and paralleling the lives of, of David and Saul as they go along. And we're, we're towards the end again of, of this 10 plus year time of David in the wilderness. The time that we've talked that God is using to grow David, to make him into the man that he is to be, the king, the leader that he is going to be. It's not something that just happens overnight. And especially when there is a great calling on a life like there is in David, there's a lot that goes into making the man of God that David will become. And we're going to see that this is even the end of a 16-month period that we began looking at last time, where David even gets to the point where he's worn out and he's tired and of, of all of the trials and everything that he's going to. And he's, it tells us in chapter 27 at the beginning, David said to himself, I'm going to escape. I'm going to get away. And he ran to the Philistines. And Saul, in this time, as he continues to fall further and further away from God and further and further into despair and, and running after the ways of the world and the things of the world, we saw last time that he even goes to a witch to get information, to call up Samuel to get this information. So we see that as it's coming together. It's important that we, again, parallel these two lives because neither one of them are on the right track at the moment as we're looking. Again, David has, has gone a wrong direction, but he is a man after God's own heart. He, that has never changed. He is a man chosen by God for a specific thing. That has never changed. And we're going to see that tonight as we continue. Chapter, we're going to look at chapter 30. Chapter 29, just real quickly again, as we, as we saw last time, important information. Now the Philistines are coming to fight against the children of Israel. And the problem for David is David's living with the Philistines. There, he's get, come into the battle lines, in the back of the battle lines with the king, going up to fight against his own people. And again, we see God's sovereign hand intervening that some of the generals within the Philistine army says, uh, King, what is he doing here? What are they doing here? They're behind us. This could go really bad. We got to get rid of them. They can't be with us. So the king finally relents and sends David away and his people, as we see at the end of chapter 29, David and his 600 men, they depart early that next morning and they leave to go back home to Ziklag. Now, it tells us, verse 1, then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. They left Aphek 
and came to Ziklag, which is about 75 miles. It says that they did it in three days. So they're traveling at least 25 miles a day to get home. So they're at a, big, they're at a pretty rapid pace to get there. That's, they're walking, riding. Some of them may be riding, but they're moving along at a good pace. No doubt anxious to get home to see their families. And what do they find? that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. Imagine, again, the scene here. This, they're coming home and they're approaching, maybe coming over just this last horizon and they could see it in the distance and they see the smoke that's coming up and they know that that's not smoke from fires making food. Something is drastically wrong, probably picking up the pace as they're getting closer. We, we, we would struggle to imagine that. Imagine going home tonight driving, turning down your street, and the whole street is leveled, and all the houses on fire, and everything, you know, your family that might be there, gone. We struggle to even comprehend what that would be like, but imagine there are Christians today in the world that face that very real fear, that when they return home, or that not knowing what they might find when they get there, I, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, how, to, how placing ourselves in these situations is difficult to imagine, but there are our brothers and sisters who face this very reality. We can never forget to continue to pray for them. It tells us that, that the Malachites, they took captive the women and all who were in it, all who were in the city, old women, children, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Imagine, again, the, the, the despair and the, and the hopeless feeling that is within, within all of them. They're, they're no doubt tired again from the travel, but then to face this and to weep and to just be totally torn apart with this. Now it says, now David's two wives have been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow, widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. So uh, with all of them, David's wives too. Moreover, it says, verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. It says David is, is greatly distressed, <laughs> no doubt. Again, with all of this that is going on, everything, he's He's been running from Saul all this time. He's made the decision to go to the Philistines. The Philistines kick him out. They're coming back home now, and everything is gone. And then, on top of all of that, now all of the men that have been following him are talking about killing him. No doubt, again, because they're looking at David and saying, David, you got us into this mess. This is all because of your decision. And that must have hit David like a, a train, this has all happened because of decisions I made. When we go back several chapters, when David first was alone and he cried out to God in the cave at Adullam, remember that? It wasn't because of anything he had done. He even said, Lord, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything wrong. I've been, I've been trying to do exactly what God is saying, and here I am all alone, running from Saul. My home's been taken. My family's been taken. I can't even go to my, my spiritual leader. I'm all alone in this cave. At that point of desperation for David, he cries out to the Lord, but there was nothing that he had done to deserve that. Now he's in this position. He's facing this problem because of the decisions that he has made. No doubt adding to the distress that he is facing. It says at the end of verse six, and this should be highlighted in every Bible, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Absolutely at the end of everything that he has, there's nothing more that David has in his own strength, he completely distressed, wiped out, wept to the point where he can't weep anymore, and he strengthens himself in the Lord. Here again, we see the first contrast in the lesson tonight between David and Saul. When, David, when Saul reached that point of absolute desperation, where did he go? He went to the witch at Endor. He ran to the world. He went completely the opposite direction. David, reaching this point, says that he strengthened himself in the Lord. He cried out in his heart. And 
how do you strengthen yourself? It says that he strengthened himself, and that's important. Strengthen himself in the Lord. Because we're going to see next that it's after that that he inquires of the Lord. But he strengthens himself in the Lord. No doubt in that, coming to that point as we see over and over in so many of his psalms where he just got to that point of praise. Praising the Lord for who he is. No doubt in that praise, remembering the love of God, that he has always been a God of love for him. The promises that he had that he's even walked away from, that when we saw in chapter 27 when he said, I need to escape, even escaping the promises. I don't want to go through what it takes to get to the promises now remembering the promises, and no doubt remembering the faithfulness of God, how he had al- has always been faithful, strengthening himself. Then, it says, David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord. The first time that it's recorded in the last 16 months that we've been following this in, in David's life that David prayed. Now, it's not saying that he never did other times, but it's the first recorded time that he again says, I'm going to inquire of the Lord. We talked of that last time when he said, he said to himself, I'm going to escape. He didn't inquire of the Lord. Should, is this what I should do? No, he had a, the meeting, the, me, myself, and I, and they all agreed, we're going to get away. And here it says that he inquired of the Lord. And he said, shall I pursue this band? Shall I go after the Amalekites? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, God speaking, pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. We see, again, as we look at David's rebellion, his running away from the Lord. Did God forsake him? Did God turn his back on David as David turned his back and ran away from the Lord and his, his plans? Not a chance. Not a chance. And I think that this is important that we, that we look at this because all of us, if we've been in that position before, if we've, if we've wandered away, and maybe you're here tonight and you have strayed away from the Lord, and you know it, you might have everybody else fooled in the room, but you know it, and you're worried about turning back to God because you're worried about what the response will be. Notice that when David inquires of the Lord, when he cries out to God, God doesn't say, who is that calling? You know, the voice sounds familiar, but it's been a long time. He doesn't say, where have you been? What have you been doing? He doesn't say, you know, you go and, you know, go over in the corner and and say this many prayers and do all of this kind of stuff to get back into my graces. No. No. God is standing there just waiting to hear from David. Just waiting for him to get to this point. He responds immediately. He, He gives David, as a matter of fact, he says pursue. He gives them a command and he gives them a promise right out of the gate. You will overtake them. You will surely overtake them. You will surely rescue all. What an amazing promise that God gives. And again, we think so often that God is going to make us somehow earn our way back into his graces. We can't. Somehow we, we think that, that we, we're not worthy of God to, to, to answer our prayer. We were never worthy of him to answer our prayer. Before we were saved or after we are saved, we're not worthy of him to answer our, any of our prayers. That's the heart of God, though, is that he desires to pour himself into us. No matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, if you're a brand new Christian, if you've been walking with the Lord forever, if you've never been closer to him or you've strayed away, he wants to hear from you. He wants you to come back into this relationship where they can exchange. I mean, this, I, I love this exchange that is going on here. And it, notice what it says, verse 9, so David went. It says that the 600 followed him, and, and I, I, the same 600 that were about ready to stone him, that were about ready to kill him, but I think it's because they saw that change in David. David, I think, would have gone by himself. 
Now, after strengthening himself in the Lord, going to the Lord, being filled again with the promises and the understanding of who God is and the desire he, he has for him to succeed and the plans that he has for him and that nothing David did messed those plans up, that he is back in now because he's repented and turned back to the Lord, filled with that Holy Spirit energy, these 600 who were ready to kill him saying, all right, I'm in. I'll follow you, David. He and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor remained behind. So he sets out with 600, they get just a little ways away, and 200 of them are just totally exhausted. Again, they've traveled 75 miles in three days. They get there to this disaster, so 200 of them just can't go on. So they stay behind, and the 400 continue on. Verse 11, again, we see, start seeing again the heart of David, the true heart of David. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread, and he ate. And they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate them. His spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drank water for three days and three nights. And we're going to find out in a minute why that is. But they come across this stranger, an Egyptian, not a Jewish man, an Egyptian, a foreigner. They're on a mission, and a very important mission. They're on their way to rescue their families their wives and their children, and they stop to take care of this total stranger. I love that. That's the, that's the heart of David. That's the heart of Jesus. Always interruptible. I love as we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus on a mission. <laughs> the greatest mission in human history. Always interruptible for the individual. Always stopping to take care of the individual. And here we see that in, in David, on this mission, stopping to feed this, this man. Again, what does this guy possibly have to offer David, to offer them? What benefit do they have to help this man other than it's the right thing to do? Other than Jesus, Jesus would later tell us, and we spoke of this this weekend, if you, I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, naked and you clothed me, was in prison, you came and visited me. We're like, when did we do that? Whenever you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Again, the heart of God in the heart of David, a man after God's own heart. It says, David said to him, to whom do you belong? He takes a personal interest in this guy too. It's not just, here's some food, we're on our way, you know, keep on running. Taking a personal interest, wanting to know and how can we help you further and where are you from? He said, I am a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. What do you think about that? <laughs> and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. So here we see again, David stops, pays attention to this man, had no reason to other than again, the heart of God, pouring into him, feeding him, taking a pers personal care in him. We find out that his actual master, when he became sick, threw him off to the side and left him for dead in the desert. David takes all who are willing to follow, just like Jesus. All the ones that the world would leave behind, Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All. The invitation is open to everyone. Interesting that it's a servant of an Amalekite. And he goes on, no doubt knowing, not knowing who David was or where David was from, because he even boasts almost, it seems like, we made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites, and which, we, which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. We, that word we used there is an emphatic we, indicating that he was part of that whole process. And now here he is. <laughs> David says, then David said to him, will you bring me down to this band? No doubt the guy probably all of a sudden figured out by David's countenance maybe changing. Oh, really? Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will bring you down to this band. So again, 
See the providence? See the providential hand of God? David did not know that this man could benefit or help him. That's not why he helped him. But in so doing, God says, here, I'm going I'm to walk you right to where you need to go. Take you right there. The providential hand of God moving in this entire process. And this, this guy says, I'll take you there. Just don't kill me. Don't turn me over. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So here, the Amalekites are partying it up, no doubt thinking, again, David is up fighting with the Philistines weeks away by normal travel from coming back. They have nothing to worry about partying. The, the indications here are that they're, they're heavily, heavily drinking and have not a worry in the world, partying away, and here David comes. And it says, verse 17, David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Now, they, they engage in battle. That twilight can meet either at evening, so basically a 24-hour period, or twilight, meaning the, the early the next morning. Either way, the, 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 it, it's clear. They were in no position to fight back. They were, they were drunk, so the, the, the battle is, is one-sided. I think it's interesting because it says not one of them escaped except 400 young men. So 400 got away. That would indicate if not, a, not one got away except 400, there was a whole lot of them. And David's down to 400 men who are weary and tired, but as we sang earlier, the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord said, you go, you will surely win and they moved out. They were, again, that, they went into that battle victorious. There was no chance they were going to lose. God said it was promised. They went, they went in, and they soundly defeat the enemy. When it, it speaks of, uh, Charles Spurgeon had a quote speaking of these verses that are here. The promise that was made to David, David still had to act on that promise. They didn't just pull up next to it and sit back and say, all right, God, you promised, go ahead and do your thing. The, the quote goes something along the lines, trust God and fight with all you've got. And it's interesting because Amalek is a picture of the flesh in the Old Testament. And we have promises in the New Testament. We have, and just 2 Peter it tells us that in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us everything that we need. We don't, we don't bring anything to it. He already has, and it's in the past tense. But Peter goes on to say, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Promises, again, based on what he has given, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now verse 5, though, he goes on to say, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. That's, that applying all diligent means you're putting in maximum effort. So he's given us everything that we need to live a godly life, to have victory over the flesh and the world and the enemy. But we need to apply all diligence. We need to work it out. In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. These qualities are not qualities we bring. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. Those are the things that God gives to us that we work out, applying maximum effort. For these qualities are yours in increasing. They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The promise that we have He's given us what we need. He's given us everything that we need for this life of godliness. 
But we need to work it out. We need to apply maximum effort on our part. Paul spoke of the same thing, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Work it out, not work for your salvation, but work it out as God works in us both to desire and to do. David received the promises, but he had to step out in, in faith and act on those promises. Verse 18, so David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was myth- missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken for themselves, David brought it all back. Again, this to me is an, an important point to make that, again, this is a child of God, remember. David, a man after God's own heart. But a man that had wandered away. A man, to use New Testament, look, became a prodigal. A son, but a son that had wandered away. A prodigal son. And we look at Romans 8.28, And we, we, we all know it, and, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God works, uses all things together for good. That's important to understand. But we can look at that and say, okay, when we say all things, even our rebellion, even, even our our turning away, even our time that if we get into that prodigal life, he can use that? For his glory and for our good? Absolutely. He goes on to say, Paul in Romans chapter 8, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Those words that are used there, are all in the past tense. None of us have our glorified bodies yet, but it's such a done deal if you are a born-again believer that Paul records it for us in the past tense. He has already glorified you. Praise the Lord. (laughs) For those, I'm gonna read it again. This is important. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. Born again believer, that is our destiny. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Again, that means preeminence. It's not like we become him. He will always be far greater. But those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is sovereign. He is in control. He will never allow a lapse into godlessness, even, even, in, even a, a time in, in the world, a prodigal time. He will never allow that time to ruin his eternal purpose for someone. He didn't for David. He won't for us. When I was thinking through this this morning, I... I was drawn to Joel chapter two, and it was interesting because I I didn't think that this is where it was going, but as I read this, Joel chapter two, if you can read the whole chapter later, it speaks of a judgment that is coming on the children of Israel, a judgment that is brought by enemy forces that are gonna come in and lay waste to the land and to the people. But as we get to the, to the end of, of this chapter, it gets to cha- verse 21. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear. And it goes on down, verse, so rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. But verse 25 says this, then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. 
he's saying this is, it's all going to be restored as a child. Again, the prodigal son returning home. David now returning home. We see in the text that he gets all returned to him. God restores all that he had taken away to get David's attention. And when we come back, it's the same with us. If you have strayed away and you are worried about how God is going to treat you when you come back, he's going to treat you like his son or daughter. He will restore everything to you in the relationship that you have with him that he even, that he even took away in order to get your attention to come back. That doesn't mean necessarily dollar for dollar or thing for thing, but he will restore the relationship back to better than it ever has been. And it's not because we somehow again now work to get back into that place. You are a child of God that does not change. If you are a born-again believer, that cannot change. Jesus said, nothing can take you out of my hand. You might fall down in Jesus' hand, but you aren't going to fall out of it. That's a promise. An amazing promise. <laughs> Alan Redpath says, I believe in the perseverance of the saints because I believe in the perseverance of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> Everything restored. So David, verse 20, had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. Now we see now, too, not only did they recover everything that they had, but as the Egyptians said, they'd been raiding other places, too. So now they have all of this extra spoil, is what it's speaking of here, stuff that they didn't have before, excess. When David, verse 21, came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David who had been left by the brook at Bezor, they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David. Now, I thought that was interesting looking at that, wicked and worthless men. So there are some that are even going to fight with David who aren't the godliest people. And I, I love that because David doesn't throw them away. David, again, Everyone who is willing to follow me can follow me. And they have some growing up to do. They have some, they have some lessons to learn, and David's going to show that here. These guys, though, they said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. So they're saying, you 200 guys who were too tired... That, to come with us and fight. You can't have any of the spoil. We'll let you have your wives and your kids back, but take them and go. That was, that was their heart. But David said, you must not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. Notice the big difference in the understanding. What made these guys worthless men? What made these guys the wicked men? Notice what they said. The spoil that we have recovered. <laughs> that we did. Notice again now David's heart. The Lord has given it. Who has kept us and delivered into our hands. It was the Lord that did it. He kept us. He delivered us. I think it's amazing that, that these, these guys didn't, didn't realize that, that of their 400, they go against these guys. Not one of them was lost. Not, nothing was lost. They recover it all, and they fail to see that this is a glorious <laughs> hand of God in this whole thing. They were giving credit to David. This is David's spoil, but it's the Lord's spoil, and David knew that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 7 says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, or if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? It's important that we understand that, that we have nothing that we didn't receive. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, 
For through, gra- through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individual members one of another. Not to think more highly of ourselves, not to hold on to things and think that there are things that we have accumulated, that we have done. This became, it tells us that this became like the law of the land. That, that those that go out to battle share the spoil with those who stay with the baggage. Those who go, go out to do the fighting on the front lines share with those who stayed back. The spoil belongs to the Lord. Everything that we have is his. Everything that we have belongs to him. Everything that we have received, whether that's material things, but spiritual things, spiritual gifts, not one is greater than another. And we all use them for one another. We all use them to bring glory to God. Not everyone is called to go out and be a missionary. Not everyone is called to go somewhere. Others are called to stay back. And to, and to provide financially for that person to go. To provide prayer support for those to go. No one is greater than another. As a matter of fact, I would argue that those that are on their knees in prayer, praying, if anything, they're the greatest. They're the engine that makes it all go, that prayer engine. Great rewards for that great rewards because it's that ministry that that no one else sees and knows other than the Lord. Going to be rewarded for that. We have some amazing prayer warriors in our church. Amazing. I know it. I feel it. As people pray for me, the rewards in heaven are great. The rewards in heaven are great. I have a I have a prayer warrior at home. My wife praying for me all the time. Her rewards in heaven are going to be great just for putting up with me, but for, for all that she does. So many. So many. And to think again, and we have to be careful because we can all fall into this, thinking, you know, this is mine, this is mine. It all belongs to the Lord. And we all share. We all share Paul, Paul speaks of that, you know, I, I planted, Apollo's watered, but God gets the increase. I was talking with a couple after church on, on Saturday night this last week, and they were talking about how it was last weekend, last weekend, week and a half ago now, that they both, husband and wife, they accepted the Lord. They'd been coming to church here a couple of weeks, and you know where they, where they received the Lord? They were up in t- vacationing in Estes Park and they were driving through the, you know, the, the up on top of the mountain up there, you know, where you get up, up high. The, I can't, totally forgot the name of the, the highway that goes up there. But anyway, way above Estes Park, above tree line. And they got up there and they just, the glory of God just overwhelmed both of them and they stopped and prayed and received Christ up there. Praise the Lord! Who gets credit for that? <laughs> the Lord does. We don't have any idea how it is he works and what it is that he's going to do. And how, for anybody to take any type of credit whatsoever other than to give glory to God, it all belongs to him. The spoils all belong to him. Well, he goes on, sorry, verse 24. Who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so his share shall be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. We all share in that. All share in it. So it has been from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel that day. Guys, we can never forget the fact we are not manufacturers. We're distributors. We all work in that function. The Lord gives the gifts. We just are conduits, distributors. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent out some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. 
he starts, he, not only that, not only sharing with the, those that stayed behind with the baggage, starts sending, sending it out. Those who were in Bethel, to those who were in Ramoth at the time of the Negev, to those who were at Jatir, and to those who were at Eror, and to those who were at Shipmoth, and to those who were at Estamoa, and to those who were at Rakal, and to those who were in the cities of the Jeshurunites. Just read them really fast, you'll think I know what I'm talking about. And to those who were the cities of the Kenites, and to those who were in Hormath, and to those who were in Borshan, and to those at Athtek, and all these other places. And David, to all the places that David and himself and his men were accustomed to go. All of these places that they'd been traveling around to these different places, they had all of this extra spoil, so they're sending it all out. Generous with what God has been so generous giving to David. Well, chapter... Chapter 31, sad chapter as we see the end of the life of Saul. Glorious chapter in verse chapter 30 where David comes back to the Lord and we see just that beautiful restoration. But 31, verse 1, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So here we see, again, just the contrast. These 600 men following David, no matter how tired they are, and they move forward, and 200 stay behind, 400 go forward, this great victory filled, you know, nothing but confidence because the promises of God, following the promises of God. Here we see the Israelites following Saul, who hasn't gone to the Lord. He goes to the witch at Endor. Now the Philistines, the men of Israel, they fled. They're full of fear. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The three sons of Saul here, there's a fourth son that we're going to see as we get into the second Samuel, but three of Saul's sons, don't know if Saul saw them all perish, but battle is quickly overtaking them, and three of his sons. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword, and he fell on it. Saul hit by several arrows, the indicating that he even into several arrows into his abdomen, dying a very painful death right now. And as the enemy is closing in on him, understanding that the, the enemy would probably prolong his death, make him suffer and make sport of him, as he's saying here, knowing that he's going to die, asks his armor bearer to kill him, finish him off, he wouldn't. So Saul falls on his sword. We're going to see in, when we get into 2 Samuel, that someone comes and, and tells David that he was the one who actually finished Saul off, that Saul asked him and, and, he, and, he, and he finished him off with that. Some debate whether Saul survives himself falling on the sword. It tells us in a minute that he died, verse 6. So when we see that, if you've read ahead or you know that story, is that a contradiction? No, I believe it's this other guy coming to David thinking, hey, I'm going to get into David's graces, telling him that I finished off the king so that he could be king. That's going to backfire, as we'll see. So Saul falls on his own sword. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. They abandoned this area. And this is north. I mean, this is way up into Israel. And they're abandoning and they're running away. And the Philistines are now taking over these cities. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. We see the sport that they then make of them. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his weapons, and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Beit Shan. 
Beit Shan is one of the places we actually go to in Israel. If you've ever been there, it's that place where the, the, the amazing ruins that have been unearthed in the time, basically the time of Paul. And the, the whole city was destroyed by a massive earthquake. And it's quite a, an amazing ruins to walk through. Now, this city obviously was built way later than the time we're seeing here. And when you walk through the ruins, there's a tell that's at the back of it, this tall hill. And you can climb up to the top of it and, and stand and look down there. Well, when you climb up to the top of that hill, if you did that and you're standing up there, you're standing on where Saul's body was pinned to the wall. That's Beit Shan. And at the time of Saul, it was a smaller town that was built up there. And then later, those ruins that are down below. But they do this again to make sport of Saul. He's now killed. He's in the Philistines have victory. They cut his head off and they nail his body to the wall. Also along with his sons, Jonathan. Now, it says, verse 11, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night, and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Beit Shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Jabesh-Gilead, you might remember back in chapter 11, the Ammonites, this is before Saul is recognized as king, Samuel has already anointed him as king, but before the big ceremony and everybody, you know, that, that takes place, the Ammonites come against the town of Jabesh Gilead, and the king says to them, I will let you all live on one condition. You serve me, and we're going to poke out your right eyes. And they're like, can you give us some time to think about it? And so they send word to Saul Saul hears of it. Saul rallies a bunch of, of people around and basically said, if you don't come with us to fight against them, you're, you know, we're going to wipe you out. So he gathers a whole group of soldiers and they go up and they defeat the Ammonites, rescuing these people from Jabesh Gilead. No doubt, even as far off the rails as Saul got, there's some loyalty here with these people for Saul. And when they heard of it, they travel all night and they come and they take the bodies, and it says that they burned them there. I've been asked the question before about, about cremation. Is it okay as a Christian to have your body cremated? And I, you know, I'll just let you, you do what you want. <laughs> it, you know, it, well, what is God going to do with, you know, if, if the body's cremated? And it's, you know, it, God, God's, God's got that taken care of. <laughs> All of those, all, all of the, the, all of the bones, David's bones, it's all dust now anyway. You know, it's, God, God's got a much better plan, and, and I don't want this one back anyway. I'm going to get a much better one. <laughs> when, and, and cremation's a lot cheaper and all that type of stuff, so I, that's what I want done. But it's all, it's, there's, it, people have asked, is it a sin? Because I've heard, I don't know if the certain religions teach that that's a sin. It's not. It's, there's nowhere that it's... Uh, promoted or condemned anywhere. Um, so anyway, for whatever that's worth. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. So Saul meets this tragic end. And we'll see as we get into now 2 Samuel and to, to be reading ahead, uh, David laments when he hears of Saul's death. And truly a tragic end. And it didn't have to be that way. As we've mentioned, Saul, when, you know, he, God said that the kingdom will be taken from you because of his sin, because of his action. And instead of repenting and accepting, he fought against the Lord and hardened his heart and continually kept on hardening his heart and falling further and further away from the Lord. And we see this tragic end to his life. As we, as we close, I don't want to get into 2 Samuel tonight, so be reading ahead. We'll get into that starting next week. I guess I want to circle back around just one more time. If you're here tonight hearing this or maybe even listening some other time online and you've strayed away from the Lord and you're, you're concerned about how he would receive you back, you keep running because you, you, you've, you've heard or you, maybe you've been taught before that you have to go through a whole bunch of things or you have this image of God that he's, that he's angry, that he just wants to squash you, that he wants to crush you. 
Isaiah records this in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. You might be thinking, saying, yeah, but you don't know how bad it's been. You don't know how far I've gone. You don't know how deep I've fallen into sin. You can't out God's grace. The blood of Jesus paid for it all. The, the story of the prodigal son fell so far. The illustration that Jesus used is this man was eating the corn cobs with the pigs in the, in the pig pen. That's how far he had fallen. And he said, it has to be better if I could even just go back and serve in any capacity for my father better than this. He thought he'd have to go back and be you know, a, a whipping boy, a slave, whatever it was. But when he came, his father ran to embrace him and restored him. And that's what God wants to do with you tonight. He wants to restore you. He wants to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And it's simply a matter of you saying, I'm tired of this and I want to come back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that amazing truth that you paid it all. That you paid the penalty for every sin that we've committed. Lord, we weren't worthy of you forgiving us the first time. And we certainly aren't worthy of it today. But Lord, we know and we trust your word as it says that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if that is you and you have strayed away from the Lord or you're here and you have never even taken that first step to receive the Lord and his free gift of grace and eternal life, you simply go before the Lord and you say, Lord, I've blown it. I've fallen away. But Lord, I want to be restored. I want to come back. And I believe the promise of your word, that you have compassion and that you will abundantly pardon. So Lord, I turn from my sin. I turn from this life. I turn back to you now and I ask that you would just wipe it all away and restore me. Restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I want to follow you from this day on. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. And Lord, that's our desire, all of us. That, you would, that we would be filled to overflowing. That you would use us in great and mighty ways and that you would get all of the glory. Lord, they're all your spoils. Let us be distributors. Let us be conduits, Lord. Use us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week. Stay warm.